stand standing and pray with me. Holy Spirit, come now. Open our hearts to your word. Lord, I pray that you would do a special work at Christ Church in these days ahead. Lord, that you would soften our hearts, give us hearts of flesh. Don't let us become churchy people. Let us be people who follow Jesus without reservation and begin that work through your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So yeah, whatever it is, I got it too. Which is unfortunate since this morning I have to do a verse-by-verse exposition of all of John's gospel we just heard. If you're not, that's not going to happen. But that passage we just read from John chapter 11 comes at the hinge point of this gospel of John here in the Bible. John's chapters 1 through 12 are what some scholars refer to as the book of signs. And the second half of the gospel is called the book of glory because all of Jesus' actions and his teaching point to and culminate in his glorification when he is enthroned on the cross. And that's in that second part of John's gospel. So in chapters 1 through 12, Jesus does miracles, which aren't called miracles in this gospel, but signs because they always point to a deeper spiritual reality. And then Jesus offers long discourses on the underlying spiritual reality to which the sign points. And what are those signs pointing to? Well, the answer to that is given to us in chapter 20 of verse I mean, chapter 20 of the Gospel of John. Listen, beginning at verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's gospel is pointing to this. It is written so that we would believe in Jesus, which for John doesn't mean just believing in our heads. It's not just head knowledge, but rather it's a personal, profound trust in Jesus Christ. It's kind of like, um, it's like the difference between believing a vacation destination exists because you have seen it on a map and then trusting your vacation to the GPS to get there. One is a mental ascent. The other can change your life if it's not right. So trusting ourselves to Jesus means that we are given life through him. And remember this, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, Jesus came to make dead people live. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, he came to make dead people alive. And so throughout John's gospel, people personally encountered Jesus Christ and they trusted him and they experienced an essential transformation of who they are. And that's why this last great sign in the book of signs in John's gospel serves as the capstone to this part of his gospel. So the scene is set when Jesus allows his close friend Lazarus to die. He intentionally stays away from Bethany, which is just adjacent to Jerusalem. And even though he has heard the news that Lazarus is sick, he refuses to, he refuses to intervene so that something more glorious than merely healing a sick man can occur. Jesus is about to visibly demonstrate 
that he has come into the world to bring life where the power of death has claimed its human prey. And on the way to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is confronted by Lazarus's grieving sister, Martha. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been, just listen to the accusation that is in this. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Now here's what I want us to focus on in Martha's interaction with Jesus. She believes in the resurrection. She believes that her brother will live again. But she believes that all of the fulfillment of God's promises, listen, are in the future. In response, Jesus says, the resurrection isn't in the future. The resurrection is in me. And since, and since I am here, the resurrection life that God promises you is here right now. So Jesus began, Jesus said to her, this is verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. And then Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus. And as somebody has said, where the world would put a period, God inserts a comma. Where the world would put a period, God inserts a comma. And Jesus lays, raises Lazarus from the dead. And then what happens? What happens to Lazarus after that? Well, if we just peek ahead to chapter 12, it says this. Six days later, six days before the Passover, Jesus uh, therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave, this is in verse, uh, so they gave a dinner for him there. Listen, Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with, with him at the table. So where is Lazarus after, his res, after being raised from the dead? He is living, listen, I want you to do this, this is an important point. He is living the resurrected life. He is restored to the community of his family and friends. He's reclining at the table with Jesus. It's a scene of peace and joy and fulfillment and community. There is a vision of the messianic banquet here that was the great longing of the covenant people of God. This is, what, this is a life of shalom, a life of wholeness, of, of everything being just as it should be. This is a life of intense communion with Jesus and with others in the community of believers. It is a life where we are at peace with God and other people. It is a life that flows with a deep underground river of joy. Now, I want you to think about a time when you experienced a moment when everything was exactly as it should have been. Maybe for you, it was when you were standing on one of our beaches here in North Carolina, looking over the Atlantic Ocean on a, on a sunrise, and the ocean was, a, what they say down east, it was a slick camp, a slick calm. And there's a gentle, warm breeze blowing. And it's that sense of peace. And you know that God is there. And that's shalom. Or maybe it's like one of my, I, uh, a memory imprinted in my mind of hiking on the Appalachian Trail and 
walking under a canopy. Some people call the Appalachian Trail the long green tunnel because <laughs> you're under a canopy of trees most of the time, it seems like. But you're walking on the Appalachian Trail and all of a sudden you come out of the canopy and into a beautiful valley which stretches out before you with little farms dotting the valley floor and the smell of mown hay freshly cut and sound of bees flying around and the trees rising up on the embracing hills and you just know God is there. It's shalom. It's, everything is worth it. Maybe it's uh, when three generations of family are around the table at your house and there are stories and memories and harmony and in that moment of deep, intense fellowship, you know that God is there. <clears throat> Worry and stress and conflict and doubt and pain are a thousand miles away. And in your heart, you are reclining at the table with Jesus, surrounded by those you love. That is a glimpse into the resurrection life and the life that Jesus wants you to experience right now. Not at the end of time, but today. And this idea of experiencing a new life isn't just in John's gospel. Experiencing a resurrected life. That's what the Apostle Paul also thinks is going to happen when we trust in Jesus. In Romans 8, we heard this morning, but if Christ is in you, though, although the body is dead because of sin, I guess I know why I've got this sickness. There's sin in my life. That's what my buddy Greg Jinks always tells me. Because... Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now listen to this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul believes that when we are in Christ, we're empowered to live a new reality it's what I've called the resurrection life. And as Ann Jervis, the professor of New Testament at Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto says, she says, Paul believes that this is a new reality, not something people dream about in their heads or have to work hard to pretend that they are living in. It is not a reality that exists somewhere else or in the future. Paul is certain that it is real. It is here and it is now. Paul is convinced that because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, a new reality, or as some interpreters of Paul would call it, a new cosmos is here right now. Folks, it's here right now. And if it's not, then we're just playing church. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, it is. But then why am I not experiencing that? <laughs> well, there's a problem. There's an obstacle. And actually, Paul helps us out because he identifies it in Romans 8. He calls it the flesh. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Paul says that the reason we don't experience life and peace of the resurrection life is that our minds are set on the flesh and that is death. Now there's two things. First of all, what he, when, when he says here mind, the mind that is set on the flesh, 
He doesn't just mean the faculty of reason, not just critical thinking. Rather, the Greek word phronema indicates that what, this is what that word mind, phronema, means. It means what a person strives for, what a person aims at, what a person cares about most. It's an orientation, or I would call it a trajectory of life. And the second thing here is the word flesh doesn't mean our skin or our bodies. I've explained this before. We just need to remember that. Here's the simplest definition of what I think Paul means by the flesh. The flesh is that part of my thinking, that part of my will, that part of my emotions that does not like God. It was the part of me this morning that said, I really just don't want to go to church. I'd rather just veg out. The flesh is that part of me that sees Jesus Christ. Listen, the flesh is that part of the human person because of the fall that sees Jesus Christ as an obstacle to personal fulfillment. For the mind that is set on the flesh, Paul says in verse 7 of Romans 8, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. There is a part of each of us that is repelled by God and doesn't want to live in submission to God. There's a part of each of us that wants to be independent from God. And when that part of us is driving our lives, then we lose the shalom, the fulfilled peace and joy and power of the resurrection life. And we know what the power, we know the power of the flesh is driving our lives. We know what it looks like because Paul talks about the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. And let me just kind of distill that. He says the flesh reveals it th- itself in things like this. So if, uh, listen up. It reveals itself in broken relationships, in bitterness uh, that we cling to, where we kind of hold on to it. It reveals itself in anger and a desire for revenge. So if we are experiencing that, that's influencing our life, that's the flesh. It reveals, it reveals itself in how we cherish and hoard the offenses and grievances that come to us. So when we've been offended or when we have been aggrieved by someone, we kind of hold on to that and pet it. We just love on it. Keep it right there. Never let go of that. Mm-mm-mm. That's the flesh. It reveals itself in things like our desire for sexual fulfillment separate from God's created purposes for human sexuality. It reveals itself in in things like binging on food or alcohol as a means of seeking pleasure and fulfillment or escape. That's what the flesh looks like. Now here's the application for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have truly trusted Christ and have experienced the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. We are either setting our minds on the flesh or we're setting our minds on the Spirit. We can't do both at the same time. Many times, we would like to have it both ways. But these are two opposing and irreconcilable forces in our lives. As believers, if we set our minds on the flesh, then we are going to lose that inner sense of joy and peace and communion with God and being directed and led intensely by the Holy Spirit. We will hate our prayer time. We will be indifferent to worship. We will think tithing is insane and we will hoard our wealth. We will find the Christian walk tedious 
boring and frustrating. And if we set our minds on the Spirit, though, then we will live with peace and joy and love for God and neighbor and a steady encounter with the Holy Spirit's supernatural power in prayer and living out the Christian life. So what is the answer to this? How do we move from a mind that is set on the flesh to a mind that is set on the Spirit? I want to know how you fix this. Because I, I remember I was, I was at a teaching. This was, I mean, at the very beginning of my time as, in ministry, as ordained minister, um, I went to the licensing, uh, License to Preach course, at, and they had it at Duke. And there was this guy, he gave this long talk about Galatians chapter 5, about walking in the Spirit, and walking, or, or the, walking in the flesh, or walking in the Spirit. And he, 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 he convinced me. I wanted to walk in the Spirit. I didn't want to walk in the flesh. But he didn't tell me how to fix it. <laughs> And I need to know. So what is he? I will. I'm just a little slower than usual today. And it runs like this. There's a grandfather telling his grandson. He says, speaks to his grandson. He says, grandson, there are two wolves living in my heart. One is, is violent and evil. And the other one is compassionate and wise. And the grandson said, Oh, grandfather, which one will live? Which one will win? And the grandfather said, The one that I feed. The wolf that I feed. So if you have lost your joy and peace and power for Christian living, you need to ask yourself, What wolf are you feeding? Let me get up all in your mess. <laughs> what are you filling your mind with? And I want to just stop right there. There, is something, there are some things that we think are actually good and worthwhile. And they, they will mess with your heart, though. You fill it with your mind with it, and it messes with your heart. What kind of, are you a consumer of, uh, oh gosh, this is so convicting. Uh, do you, are you reading news and getting your information from sources that inflame your passions, your anger, your frustration, your sense of despair. Um, and maybe are you getting more news that you don't really need where you really need the good news? I need to think about that. What wolf are you feeding? Are you filling your mind with conversations and relationships and images and games and reading that empower the part of you that doesn't like God? We, we live in a time when there are... Look, guys, we, this is a, we live in a renaissance of television. Long format storytelling. It really is. It's amazing. Uh, I, I was mostly in my teenage years in the 70s and let me tell you, TV was horrible in the 70s. It was painfully bad. I, I really don't think anything was good very much. 60s were all right, but let me tell you what, where we live right now is wonderful. There's so much creativity. Production values are so high. The writing is so good. Some of the stories really touch a lot of the deep things that we need to deal with. But there are also things in those now that are intentionally set there to inflame the flesh. I, I love fantasy and I love science fiction, but I can't watch Game of Thrones or Outlander. And the reason for that is because you cannot extricate the plot from the porn. Um, 
I just started watching a British TV shows about a murder mystery in a in a uh, Norwegian research community, and the same thing happened there. It's a great story. I mean, it mo- it's glacially slow. It seems fitting, but it's you can't extricate the plot from the porn. I can't. I can't stay in that. We have so desensitized ourselves to unrighteousness that we do not think that this is really having an impact on our relationship with God. But the result is a powerless, joyless kind of discipleship in which the core of our faith becomes increasingly implausible to us. Every renewal movement in the church that I can think of, from St. Benedict to St. Francis to the Puritans to the Methodists, developed a pattern of intentional Christian living for the purpose of putting the flesh to death and setting the mind on the things of the Spirit. Now, most of y'all know that I have a Wesleyan background, a Methodist background, and I really am still deeply influenced by that. John Wesley provided, he was an Anglican priest, by the way. He's kind of rambunctious, but he was still Anglican. (laughs) He provided some great tools for those who came to Christ under his ministry for this purpose. And I paraphrased Wesley's words that he wrote in the 1700s to apply to the 21st century. And these things still guide me in determining where I'm setting my mind. And they are still convicting to this day. Listen to this. Am I engaged in entertainment and pastimes that cannot be used in the name of the Lord Jesus? Am I consuming music and media which do not tend to the knowledge and love of God? Am I self-indulgent? Oh, wow. Am I, devoted, am I devoting a lot of my time and energy to just getting more stuff? Am I buying things on credit and not submitting my purchases to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Am I nursing a grudge or bitterness or unforgiveness? What wolf am I feeding? Now, the remedy for this is setting the mind on the things of the Spirit. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. How do we get here? How do we get there from here? Well, I, here's where we, we, we're going to end this morning. We get there from the mindset on the flesh to the mindset on the spirit. We get there, but we can't do it on our own. We get there in exactly the words of the collect that Father Keith led us in this morning. And so I want you to listen to this as we close. Almighty God, you alone. Okay, so who can do this? You alone, God. Can bring into order the unruly wills. Have you got an unruly will? My will is so unruly, it's practically a William. (laughs) And affections, the unruly will and affections, the things we love of sinners. Who can do this? Only God. Grant your people grace. What is that? I need your supernatural power because I'm obviously not able to do this myself. Grant your people grace. Where would I find me some grace? Hmm, well, I could read my Bible, yeah. I could pray every day, yeah. 
I can spend time in Christian community. Yeah. I can come to the Lord's Supper every Sunday and find me some grace. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise. That among the swift and varied changes of this world, our hearts may be surely fixed where true joys are to be found. Brothers and sisters, may God answer this prayer in my life and may He answer it in your life as well. That we walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh, and that we live the resurrection life now. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you at this time to stand with me as we confess the Christian faith together in the words of the Nicene Creed.